You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Borman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And Neil, today I wanted to talk about one of the papers that won the Best Paper Award at ICML this year. There were there were two. This one is entitled Delayed Impact of Fair Machine Learning. And it's got a really interesting author's list and it delves into some really interesting stuff technically. But the one thing that I really wanted to pick up on is that in this paper, there seems to be a conversation beginning around the fact that in order to look at the impact of your work, if you were really trying to evaluate the quote-unquote fairness of your tool, then you need to take sort of a longitudinal look at the impact. You can't just sort of do a one-point-in-time drop-in. You have to continue to look at the impact. And that, I thought, was something I had not heard other people talk about. And it struck me as being sort of a fundamental thought in lots of other fields, like medicine and, you know, engineering and things like that, like longitudinal studies are key. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great call out, Catherine. As you mentioned, uh, it's from a great team, uh, Lydia Liu, Sarah Dean, Esther Rolf, Max Simjevitz and uh, Moritz Hart. And I was actually lucky enough to be at a meeting where Moritz, I think, was presenting and uh, I, I don't know uh, Lydia, uh, Sarah, Esther, and Max, but but Moritz uh, is is certainly an extremely clear thinker and leader in this space. So it doesn't surprise me that that this team has been thinking about such important problems. One of the things they they look at two measures of fairness. Um, so one of which, roughly speaking, is uh, you're making equal. So if if we as, as, think of a loan awarding system that we're within two um, protected group designations we're making the same amount of positive loan decisions in both groups so let's let's say the mods and the rockers so we're awarding just as many loans to mods as we are to rockers not that there is protected discrimination between mods and rockers so the first one says you're making as many positive decisions, but but the weakness, as as Moritz explained very clearly, certainly in this talk uh, of 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 that approach, is clearer than I'm going to explain it. Um, that of course you can just make that by making random decisions. You don't have to, you know, just like oh, I'm really shit at making decisions about mods, so I'll just give 25% of them loans, and it's such a small part of things, and and that's not really fair because you're then discriminating against hard-working mods with good critic scores. So the other one is that you keep the true positive rate. That's not really the point of the behavior. The point, as you say, is um, to try and start... Um, and I don't I, I don't think... And I remember chatting to Moritz afterwards or listening to someone else chatting to Moritz. I can't remember which. Where I think he said, and, and I'm sure this group would say, that this is the start of a journey. Because if you're making these decisions, these are sort of feeding back in some way into the population and... Um, and I think that that's part of a, a bigger phenomena that relates a little bit to um, some of the things we were talking about with the ethics conversation the previous episode. That, um, that, well, maybe we didn't touch on this so much, but the downstream consequences of what we do actually affect society. Yeah. And it's now that's something we have to take account for. So just as a general point, we're creating feedback systems within these sort of social media effects uh, of course there's a lot of talk about you know where the people have manipulated certain outcomes but that's quite difficult to separate from just this fundamental effect that by connecting very many people easily people tend to self-select their peers and self-reinforce their own opinions so you get a more 
divisive debate. In retrospect, we see that. So that's an effect that you're actually having on the nature of people's communication networks. So whenever you're making these sort of interventions, things like that are, are going to happen. And there's actually a very interesting project, um, Rod Murray-Smith running at University of Glasgow on the notion of closed-loop data science, he calls it. Uh, Rod has a very sophisticated understanding of control theory. And, of course, this is kind of related to control theory because feedback control. So where you take an action and that has a feedback on, on the input. Yeah, that type of thinking, very hard. You know, it makes me um, think a little bit about, um, you know, the foundation trilogy of yeah. Isaac Asimov and psychohistory. My understanding was he was a fairly young chemistry PhD student or student when he wrote the foundation, which I really, I really love the first three. I think later on, I think it's okay. I, I kind of like, I don't know, and, and the first three, I was, I kind of like the fact that they were clearly written for like each magazine at a time, so the stories sort of unfold in a sort of like way of, I think. So the, the idea of psychohistory for those that don't know it is is somehow that. I, well, I think it's this. Maybe I'm incorrect, but m my sense is that you, you can predict behavior from chemical reactions even though there's small interactions going on because in chemistry's case, it's well mixed and everything else because laws of large number effect cause deterministic results. And I think that Asimov was taken by this notion and sort of thought, well, what if you could do the same thing with people? And the, in, in the Foundation trilogy, that's the idea that you can predict future by, by using those ideas. But then you get to these critical moments where everything narrows down into one big decision. So which is actually also so this is central limit theorem, really. Yeah. But then every so often a large input which critically changes things. Now, if we take that sort of notion, what you're really saying with, uh, so this is this is a difficult thing because what you're sort of saying is now we're going to have to actively look ahead and model society like that. You know, th this is the sort of implication in order to understand which action we take that when there's a feedback. Yeah, this is complex. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so this is um, this is a really really interesting area and another of those where you start to see issues that people look at in social science obviously when you're in the fairness domain now, now my worry is that as these important issues come up and we have conversations about them that are detached from the reality of what's actually going on mm -hmm. that we take actions that aren't helpful that they're just sort of like we must do something right. <laughs> and um I think it's papers like this and thoughtful work like this for Moritz. And actually at that meeting, we also had Sandra Vokta, who I, you know, we mentioned um, a paper that Sandra and Brent Mittelstadt and Chris Russell were involved in on. And I think I managed to introduce Sandra to Moritz. Uh, uh, I may not have been me, but just seeing the fact that they met for the first time and were talking about all these issues and you've got a lawyer talking to a very sophisticated thinker about fairness and they attended each other's presentations. These... This is why psychohistory doesn't work, because the masses, when you look at the chemical reactions uh, going on in, <laughs> in society, they're all running around panicking. But even just that connection, potentially, I'm not saying, you know, but that single connection of Sandra and Moritz or, or things that can come out of that. And that's why this area is so important and these meetings can be so important, may trigger interesting work that really addresses that. Is that. And, and, and so, yeah, I'm great that this was chosen as a best paper. And... Uh, 
really fantastic stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll have links to the ICML version and also the archive version, which I understand is a little bit longer, on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's listener question on Talking Machines is about ICML, and specifically, Neil, how the implementation of the Code of Conduct and also the uh, the naming of a diversity chair this year went. Neil, we should say that uh, you and I were press chairs, press and media co-chairs for ICML this year, and it's my understanding, having been to the conference, having experienced it, that things went very well, and I think that having a Code of Conduct in place, from, from my perspective and having seen the conference from from my point of view, that it helped to really remind people why we were all there to focus on academia and the science and, you know, perhaps making connections that are helping people to to get jobs or move their work forward or, like, ask further questions. But I think there was a distinct lightning of the party scene, which was which was really interesting. And I think it helped to people to sort of uh, re-clarify the, the conference itself. Yeah, I, as I mentioned, I, I wasn't there. And I should say that, well, we may have been press co-chairs. You, you did all the work. Yeah, it, it's, it's vital. I mean, code of contact is, is, is definitely a mechanism we can use to remind people about uh, what conferences are about. And uh, it's great to hear that the, there was a, a bit of a toning down of the sort of party scene because I, I suppose, I don't know, we were having a conversation of what are the parties for? This is how much alcohol this company can buy. Right. I mean, ostensibly they're there so that you can have social interactions with people who are already employed by this company and figure out whether or not you would be a good cultural fit for that scene. And of course, it is nice if it that's a little bit, you know, in a less formal atmosphere so you can really hear honest opinions. Yes. So there's nothing wrong with a, a little bit less formality. But, um, I mean, one should say what's interesting about that, of course, is the conference can't control what people do. And, and in, in at NIPS, there was one major entity who's world famous and even advertised themselves as having been there who wasn't even a registered sponsor having an event alongside the conference. And... Unless we move the conference to less free countries where <laughs> let's move the conference to a dictatorship where we can suppress people from doing that. You can't stop someone having a satellite event no. and doing and, and, and indeed none of the parties, to my understanding, you know, are, are sort of administered by. But code of contact is, is, is one thing you can do and, and sort of um, and encourage the right behavior and then make it clear that. If you, if you are going to be formally associated with an event, there's certain standards of behavior, expectations. Yeah, and just like having a conversation about the reasons that we are all gathering for this conference, like what is the reason for the conference, I think will only help to get people what they need out of the conference actually more effectively and faster. And of course, I mean, not that that's an uncomplex topic, because I think different people are going to the conference for different reasons. Oh, but... Um, that's fine as well. Yeah, but really people are going to be informed or have interaction. I don't know if anybody shows up to NIPS and ICML to be entertained, right? And Or maybe they do. <laughs> I, I suppose I can't make assumptions for people. How do I know? How do I know? There are all sorts of reasons they come. That's true. That's true. I mean, there are 
people there now who were just trying to get a sense of the feel of the field. I, I, yeah, I, I think it's one difficulty to know. I mean, to have been like there in the early days and know what it was about then, and it, I don't know if it's about the same. I can't even tell. I mean, it, I, I think that's one thing I worry about a little bit is when there's the people that run the conference obviously have been there from the early days and they make, they have assumptions about why people are attending, which apply to when they were at that stage. And maybe that's true, maybe that's not true, I don't know. I mean, certainly I know what a lot of my, me and my friends go for, but then I kind of recognize that we are in the minority. <laughs> We're going for the entertainment. <laughs> no, actually, well, in some sense, I think Ryan has said, I mean, in an early talking machines, maybe the first one I did, Ryan and I talked about this, the extent to which it's kind of a bit like a family reunion. You're catching up with people. And, and finding out what's going on. But if you're going for the first time, that's clearly not what you're doing. I mean, like, uh, yeah. yeah, so, and, and I do remember my first conference um, being a very, very different experience to what I think of them now. I, I think that one hard thing for me certainly is the first conference I went to, nothing else was ever quite as good because mm. you, you couldn't ever get quite as much out of it as that first time. Well, no, it used to be really interesting is that there were lots of posters without people standing in front of them. Like, yeah, I know. Yeah, totally. The poster hall, well, they used to serve beer with the posters, like free beer. And well, it used to be like there were posters without anyone in front of them, apart from the presenter. And in those days, there was a big implementation track, which is interesting because implementations is, you know, an hour thing again. And the hardware track was very separate from what else was going on. But there was often no one in front of the implementations yeah. posters. And, and I remember feeling sorry for one and then going and standing by the poster and being there for hours, like as he explained some neural network in hardware that I didn't know anything about. So in, in, in a sense, there was this time, maybe this, I mean, this may, this may not, but there was this time in which you, you might end up skirting papers with no one in front of them in case you got stuck there for a while. Because, you know, when there's a lot of people like there and someone else, you know, you can typically, if you realize you, you should be paying attention to someone else, someone else will come up and take it over and, oh, I'll, I'll catch you later. You know, you, you can go off. But that, that notion seems a bit odd to me now. It's like I in a poster session, rarely speak to anyone presenting a poster because there's such a horde of people around them that you just, and like popular posters used yeah. to be like with a few people, but you're talking like five or six. Yeah, I, I think we could do some simulation modeling of, of yeah. why it occurs when you get to that scale because there's some sort of effect where it's become like, you know, certainly it, I wasn't ICML, but NIPS, uh, you can hardly move in the poster room sometimes yeah. now. Yeah. yeah. There's also a, an interesting question of personal hygiene that I think we're going to have to learn from other large conferences about how to uh, overcome. But it was it was good it was good to see the the code of conduct implemented. It was um, great to see this first step of having a diversity chair as a formal position. I think they're um, small but good steps in the right direction that are only going to help us to better prepare ourselves as these conferences continue to change and evolve. Well, if you've got a question for Talking Machines, you can email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at TLKNGMCHNS.
This week's guest on Talking Machines is Sammy Bengio. He's a research scientist at Google. And when I got a chance to sit down with him when we were taping at ICML, I asked him the first question that I ask all of our guests. How did you get where you are? So I did a PhD in computer science there, like 25 years ago or so, when there was no such thing as machine learning <laughs> or even neural nets. <laughs> I don't know why I did that. I guess uh, it looked interesting back then. And um, the only other person I knew back then who was doing a PhD on, in that field was my brother, of course. Yashua. And uh, Yashua, yes. And, uh, and I did a PhD on uh, something that we called learning to learn 25 years ago which was used less 25 years ago, but today is actually very trendy. And after that, I, um, I worked for a few years, uh, for seven years, I think, in Switzerland as a research scientist at EDIAP, mm -hmm. uh, where I had a small uh, academic uh, team having PhD students. Many of them are now uh, quite known, like uh, Ronald Colombert or mm -hmm. David Granger or others. And after that, I joined Google about 11 years ago, when, again, there was no such thing as uh, deep learning. And I worked first, I mean, I was a research scientist doing more uh, classical machine learning, uh, ranking, and uh, some neural nets. And mm -hmm. then it became more and more useful to use neural nets. So we created this uh, Google Brain team, yeah. where I'm uh, involved a lot. That's, <laughs> to that's say what the I do now. To say the least. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Excellent. So tell me more about that. Yeah, you were you were at Google before there was Google yes. Brain. Yes. How have you seen it evolve? Uh, it's interesting. Uh, uh, many years before Google Brain existed, I had a, an intern, uh, Dumitru Erhan, mm -hmm. who was a PhD student of Yashua, and uh, we tried some uh, deep learning approaches, which were working, but about at the same level as the more classical approaches that we had inside Google for our speech recognition or our machine computer vision tasks. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't enough. But about a year or two after, other people uh, in the in the group around us uh, were able to make it work. And, and so we started a group with like three, four people. And, and it grew and grew and grew. <laughs> 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 we're still there. We don't know where it's going to stop. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and how have you seen the types of questions you're asking evolve? I mean, of course, you know, there are things that are like trendy now that weren't so much then or things that work much better now that that weren't um you know because of compute power or other available things weren't as fast as they are but yeah. how have you seen the possibilities of the questions that you can ask open up if you knew before i think it would be easier so you you don't know where it's going to go you just try many things it doesn't work and then suddenly it works and you don't really understand why but you go towards the directions where it works and we started with the more obvious uh, directions and, and applications like speech recognition and, and uh, computer vision, uh, which were clear, easy successes. And mm -hmm. indeed, that was enough for us to get enough reputation inside Google to make them launch and, and useful. And then people came. How do we choose? I think we fail a lot. So to be clear, <laughs> we don't know. We try many things. Most of them fail. Some of them work. And then we put more people on that. And <laughs> We have some intuitions, but, <laughs> but, but really, it's bumping around. <laughs> really, we fail. <laughs> and you're um, you're very involved in TensorFlow now, yes? Yeah, so TensorFlow was actually um, created in Brain Team. Uh, as we had first a uh, first uh, internal uh, environment that we called Disbelief. That was our first approach to doing deep learning. It was very cumbersome, made mostly for people doing C++. 
but most people were most research scientists were not uh, able to express their needs and so we looked for the next generation and uh, we were inspired uh, mostly by uh, by the model that was used at Yashua's uh, lab mm. Theano and we used many of their ideas but also inspired a lot by uh, Jeff Dean's uh, view of scaling mm -hmm. uh, so he's the master at scaling anything you want and so that was, I think, the two inspiration of TensorFlow, being able to scale to Google scale, which is huge, but still have the same uh, power that Theano was giving us with these graphs that you could create and mm -hmm. then use. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was very successful. Uh, then we saw that it was not enough. <laughs> and uh, when we saw uh, how Torch and then PyTorch were was more flexible, we tried also to add this flexibility. So I have to say, Torch was also created in the in the lab where I was at the at uh, EDAP oh, with nice. my PhD student, uh, Renan Colbert. So we wrote the first uh, Torch version 18 years ago, I think. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and it grew and grew. <laughs> uh, yes. Excellent. Where do you think that the project needs to go next? I mean, it's had huge impact in just like usability, right, and accessibility of these yeah. tools. So I, I think TensorFlow itself is, is a fantastic tool to, to scale your deep learning uh, model so that it can actually be used for real. It, I think it's, it needs more flexibility for the research scientists to try many things quickly. quickly. Uh, it's getting there. Uh, we have added a few tools for it, but uh, there will be more coming, <laughs> <laughs> trying to integrate ideas from the other competing approaches, which I think is, it, we are very happy that there are competing approaches because then we learn and, and do more and better keeps everybody on their toes yes yeah. yes that's yeah. always good definitely so tell me about the other questions that you're really excited about asking these days these days uh, i would say the the main question that interests me is uh, why deep learning works and mm. uh, and why it doesn't when it doesn't like uh, about two years ago we had this paper uh, about rethinking generalization for deep learning which uh, got the best paper award that uh, i clear which showed that the, the our current theories about machine learning doesn't hold that nice for the deep learning case where you have so much capacity yeah. where the models are so big that you can actually learn by heart any mapping that you want so that paper was just asking the questions not answering any of them right yeah right right <laughs> so yeah this, this was a blank slate where do we go from there yeah there has been many many papers after that about trying to explain that mm -hmm. and we're also trying our best <laughs> yeah <laughs> there's a lot to do yeah we recently submitted another paper uh, trying to to compare deep learning models so that you see differences when they generalize and when they overfit and, right but yeah. it's it's a lot of work. Yeah, to say the least. But I think these are important questions. The other the other line that I should get involved more uh, that I think is very important is everything re regarding reproducibility in yeah. general. Mm -hmm. I am I'm amazed by how many papers are published, and it's often very hard to just be able to reproduce their result. Uh, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes the code uh, is broken, or there's no code, or so. And and there are even problems in trying to measure even the measure itself is is still uh, open in many cases like for for GANs for instance we mm -hmm. have there are many competing approaches to even measure whether a GAN works or not right right so these are very open questions that our group is interested in yeah so so when you have such fundamental questions like how do I benchmark this or like what even do I do to show that, that it works what do you think are the first steps that people should be asking themselves when they're entering a new project 
and they want to be able to reproduce or they want to be able to benchmark well enough so that other people can benchmark their work. First start by a metric. So what are mm. we trying to achieve? What's mm -hmm. the goal of our problem? What's the goal that we try to solve? And how do you measure that you actually, what is success? Yeah. Define success in any meaningful way and try to achieve it. Then you have to be able to, to provide code that actually uh, shows that you reaches uh, that you reach success uh, re reliably not just once every 100 times and that is not biased towards uh, that you haven't defined the, the goal after you've seen actually right. the yeah. data and things like that so there's a lot of things to do that we don't and the first question i, I think there's a scientific process that often we don't do which mm. is have an hypothesis and and try to see that that you reach it or you don't right it's fine to fail right as i said we actually fail way more often than we succeed right but do you think that there's a feeling around not wanting to present results that failed like being yeah. so we are victim of our success yeah. i mean so many people in our community now and our reasons there's a lot of money at stake apparently and so uh, there's a very big competition and, and people need to succeed and sometimes they cut corners for yeah, success yeah. and that's not good. So we have to be on check. We have to check ourselves. We have to be careful about mm -hmm. that. Otherwise, bad things may happen. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Do you think that we're moving more towards reproducibility? You you helped to organize a workshop at, I believe, uh, ICML last year, mm -hmm. 2017. Have you seen any progress since then? or? It's going to be slow, but I think yeah. there is progress. I think in groups, uh, whether it's our group or Facebook or uh, Academia, I think uh, more people are concerned with that. And I see many like organizing uh, program chairs asking the, these kind of questions. Should we enforce uh, people providing code? Should yeah. we enforce being able to reproduce the results? Should we enforce getting the data, whatever? How do we verify that the claims are true? Mm -hmm. And can we actually build that into the system that verifies whether a paper is valid and should be accepted at a conference? So these are hard questions because in some cases we understand that it's not easy to get the data, for instance. Right. But can we put systems in place? And and I know that uh, program chairs of NIPS and ICML, which I, I have been part of as well, are interested in trying to answer these questions. So the workshop was the first step, mm -hmm. but there's plenty of things that are happening and uh, that will happen. Yeah, definitely. I think yeah, and I think um, simply asking the question about whether or not that should be involved in submission to a conference—that's a huge step. Yes. Just yes. like formalizing it that much. Yeah. This goes um, not always easily with the other fact that we want to be unbiased uh, towards, uh, say, uh, diversity. Uh, right. And so we want to protect, uh, uh, we want to be double blind because we think it's good. Yeah. So, But double blindness might be hard to do when you want also to provide the proof that your code works. Right. So these are difficult things that we need to manage. It, it's not easy. Uh, right, yeah. But but we know we have to find solutions yeah, for that. Definitely. <laughs> and you're, um, you mentioned the, being involved with conferences in your general chair of NIPS this year. Yes, I am. Um, congratulations. <laughs> How's it going? <laughs> well, I must say general chair is much easier than what I was doing <laughs> last year, which was program chair. The program chair decides and, and finds ways to, to select the papers that yeah. have to be the best of the conference, which is a huge job. And actually, it's, it's getting bigger every year by about 50% every year. So oh my gosh. there's no end to that. As a general chair, your role is to find the people who will be able to tackle the, the next Delegate. challenge. So the, the next program chair, the next tutorial chair, the next workshop chair. It's quite easy. Nice. 
Nice. Excellent. That's good. That's good. Retirement. Yes. (laughs) I love it. Excellent. And so what are you excited for at NIPS this year? Is there anything that you're really looking forward to? Uh, First of all, we we have uh, now a a diversity and inclusion Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. chair, uh, two chairs actually, who are doing a great job. They have helped create a new code of conduct. Mm. So I think we, we need to to make our environment uh, safer for everyone. Mm-hmm. And, and that was very important for us. So we put a lot of effort on that. They are actually looking at every single decision that the other chairs are doing so yeah. that every time we take a decision that who should be an invited speaker or how, what uh, workshop should be accepted, takes this into account. So I think it that's should fantastic. make our conference more open to the rest of the world. And I think that's that should be good for and the ideas that we're going to get. Yeah, an amazing step forward for diversity of thought. Yeah, but it's only one step. Right. Yes. <laughs> There's Very a lot to, yeah. more to do. Yeah. Well, Sammy, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us today. It was fantastic to talk with you. It was you. a pleasure. Sammy Bengio, one of the OG Googlers, original Googlers, I think we can say that. It was he's He's so lovely and warm and such an interesting guy to talk to about his work and about the path that he's taken. He's very, very personable. I like him a lot. I visited him in Martinique before he moved to Google. And uh, yeah, no, really um, nice guy and, and, and lots, of, lots of interesting work. Absolutely. Well, that's it for us on this episode of Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode. <laughs>